0: Welcome back to Castle Turner Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Season of Storms, chapters nine through eleven plus interlude five. This this really begins what I consider the the, the meat of the book, the best bits of the book. As I said, this ha- this book has a really weird short story ebb and flow to it, but the Riceburg Castle stuff, everything there, I think, is the strongest. Uh, and most interesting, and uh, that that really shows in the 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 way in which Geralt uh, interacts with them. It's much more in line with the saga, less, less short story like, um, and it's just far more enjoyable for me personally. Plus, the the entire idea that that mages operate on this sort of hyper capitalism is really fascinating. That everything go- comes down to money. And business in that in this is ultimately just a reflection of that, and within that, you know, you have commentary on power imbalances and privilege, and uh, you know the the way in which people can abuse that and uh open secrets like that and, and how that's that can be incredibly abusive uh, in many different ways. Plus, you have this interesting idea of the the demon thing, uh, which is something The Witcher has never really touched upon. So it provides a lot of interesting ideas, some funny, uh, you know, world building, some great character interactions. This is this is by far one of the best bits of this book and i i think this is what shows what this book can be if you give it its time uh as i said before this book is kind of difficult to deal with because of the way it's structured and uh you know uh, it was written several years later and, and so there's a lot of this weirdness in this book uh but this plus the epilogue i think really sells the book as something at least worth your attention. Uh so I think you know when when Geralt goes to Riceburg we we meet uh the uh, the mages there uh and the most interesting uh, uh right off the bat is the leader of Riceberg castle Ortolan. Um, and what's interesting about Ortolan is he's an inventor, and he he invented the immortality serum that, uh, that benefits mages, but because he invented it so late in his life, he still looks incredibly old, despite, you know, not aging. The great thing about Ortolan is the way Smokowski uses him to tackle uh, the way in which capitalism runs everything, and how... There is no moral consumption under capitalism, and how that works in favor of people like Ortolan, uh, we find out that Ortolan is a gay man, which is fine, but he has a predilection for young boys in particular, and perhaps a, a bit of pedophilia. But he uh, he doesn't go exclusively for that. But he had a tendency many, many, many years ago to take advantage of the power dynamics between novices and himself to coerce them into sleeping with him. And, uh, you know, it was sort of an open secret in The the Brotherhood of Sorcerers, and the the thing about that is they need his inventions. A lot of his inventions don't get past the testing phase. Some of them are sabotaged, whether from, uh, you know, concerned people or military people. Um, then some get tested, but are decided that they don't—they're they're not worth it. Like the missile hurler, which is a proto-gun, which was decided to be too too uh, loud, too big, too bulky to be worth anything. Much rather than just have a classic bow and arrow. The irony. But then you have things like the immortality, where Ortolan is this weird contradiction where he benefits. From uh, from the free market economy, from the the the, the late stage capitalism that the mages existed and thrive in, but he wanted it for the people, and so he is told that his immortality serum has been sold to everyone; that it is freely available to every living being, and they, they now are essentially immortal, and their lives are great and happy and wonderful. Of course, he never leaves Ricebrook Castle, so he doesn't know the truth that the Brotherhood basically took the formula and went, "Eh, it's ours, and only hands it out to uh, other mages uh, as part of their whole thing, Uh, which uh, adds into the magic 1%er thing that Josh mentioned all that time ago. And, uh, you know, Ortolan, he may not be super successful, But he is smart. And they, because of the immortality serum and a handful of other things he's created, well, he is worthwhile to the Brotherhood. So the Brotherhood overlook his indiscretions when it comes to taking advantage of novices. It's an open secret that he preys on younger men. And sometimes it is encouraged. They will send him novices to encourage him. Uh, And there's this hint of just like this... This sex slave type thing, where, uh, for payment for his experiments, they gift him these novices to use, and just how disgusting that is, and that that that's just capitalism. That is supply and demand. We need this thing, so we supply you with what you need to get that thing. Um, and we, we even see that later in in the book out uh, you know later in these chapters outside of the mages where the the uh, the charcoal burners you know they just had a massacre uh so many dead but that the the rest of the area depends on this charcoal so they moved the bodies and got right back to work supplying demand economics of as a vacuum as penetti says w- within that uh, you you have ortolan taking advantage of people and producing these experiments, and there's two problems to that. Uh, one is that the experiments of Rice Castle are actually illegal, um, and that they are they turn a blind eye due to the profit it makes. We know that they sell monsters, genetically enhanced or created monsters. They specifically mentioned in the contract. They they talk about this to Geralt that. If if these if these uh if the product was used outside what was uh, what was commissioned we have no uh responsibility. They're very much arms dealers in that way. Uh, you know, an arms dealer will deal guns to any side of the war that's willing to pay them, and they are responsible through the selling of those weapons for the deaths of countless people, innocent or otherwise. But because of the way. Their contracts work the way that they uh, use semantics, they're not responsible. They didn't pull the trigger. They gave the person the gun to pull the trigger, but they are not the trigger puller. And that circular logic, that semantics is. Part of it, so Rice Riceberg Castle essentially is like a Guantanamo Bay for an American, uh, you know, uh, thing where the we we have this base that uh, did inhumane, horrible things that were illegal, but we did them because of a legal technicality. Or there's a there's a there's a biochemicals research facility that. Uh, that famously, uh, or infamously, I guess is the correct term, uh, released a bunch of nerve gas uh, that killed a bunch of sheep uh, many many years ago in, in America. And it was an accident, but they're not supposed to be producing those weapons, only researching them. But, who knows, right? Uh, that this kind of thing of, it's about a treaty, and the treaty was signed, but, you know, if we don't acknowledge it, Therefore, it's not violating semantics, as I said, the arms dealer mentality. And within that, um, you have Sorrel Degelund, who takes advantage of this essential this, supply and demand, hypercapitalism way to advance his career. He, is, he was a novice he was uh, he was sent to uh to uh Ortolana as a gift and he took advantage of it he's not gay himself but he has no problems with uh, homosexuality so he'll just uh he'll he'll fuck Ortolana as long as he can get access to his research because as far as he's concerned that's what's important supply and demand and that's just incredibly fucked up from all sorts of angles and uh, that the way in which the everyone there is very much matter of fact about the way things are like they black they blackmailed Geralt to get here, and he was like, "You didn't have to do that." And went, ah, well, it, it it seemed reasonable. Um, and, and there's all this sort of you know weird talk about manipulation and that the way in which they do it and how everything comes down to money. Uh, galt observes as he's walking the Riceburg Hazel that the streets are d- designed to funnel you to the market. And everything comes down to the money. Uh, and that is part of what's happening with what's going on. Is Ortolan is, is running an experiment where he needs mutated eye from a Witcher. It has to come from a live subject. So, you know, he encouraged the hiring of a witcher so he could lure him there, and then Sorrel, uh, who's his assistant but also has his own plans, was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take advantage of that, and all of that, he, all of this subterfuge um, was all about because... Ortolan needs his eyes. And he promises, he pinky promises, he's developing a regenerative serum. So in a few years, uh, after he's blinded Geralt, and, uh, and who knows what else, he can take the serum, and uh, he'll he'll have his eyes back in a few years. It, it's not a big deal. I can just cut them out right now. And then Sorrel, you know, has been taking advantage of Ortolan's feelings towards him to get access to things, and he's very much interested in Demonology and everything like that. And so, he, 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 and the idea of transhumanism, how we can evolve past the need for certain things. Uh, and transhumanism is a big part of a lot of science fiction works. Occasionally, it's in fantasy works, and the the entire Elder Blood stuff was very transhumanism in a way, but it had the darker side of transhumanism, which is eugenics. And effectively, effectively what Sorrel is advocating for is. Holding the weak and um, you know breeding the strong, getting the the assets we want it's it's another form of eugenics, and uh you know to test this out he he set the he set the trap he killed all those people, uh and he's been lying because he was he, he had his ego squashed by Ortolan because Ortolan said no I don't trust you with this knowledge and so he basically lashed down like a like a child, and Ortolan does the much the same thing at one point when, when Gelt, uh mentions that he killed uh, the the monster in Pyroplats Arena, uh, and, and he discloses the the the, the, the number plate on, from the, the monster, which was its its uh, you know product code basically. Uh, Ortolan throws a fit about the historical the significance and how much setback it's done, and Gell can't help but laugh. Because he's a child. He's a child who had his toys broken. And it's everyone else's fault except his. Because, of course, he doesn't see the fact that his toy is a living, breathing creature that can kill people. He doesn't care about that. It was a toy. And Sorrel is much the same way, but it's with his ego. And... Uh, they, they are, in fact, a perfect fit for each other. They are both incredibly fucked up people, but in different ways. And, uh, you know, the, the entire situation there and how that intertwines will get more complicated as time goes on, uh, and, we'll find, and we'll find out more. But I, I think that uh, the, the focus on transhumanism and magical engineering is interesting. when I mean, You take into the fact that this came out between Witcher 2 and Witcher 3. Subkowski was a consultant on Witcher 1. He had a very very faint uh you know part in that game. It wasn't much. He he approved a map, he approved a couple of story things, uh but for the most part he was hands off. However, there are a lot of elements of this book Especially the Rainsburg Castle stuff that is very reminiscent of Witcher 1's plot. Witcher 1's plot also had to deal with mutations, Uh, you know... uh from from magic and transhumanism, and he, interestingly, it has a sort of a sort of not quite possessed character in it, and uh, a character we'll meet later who's very reminiscent of a character from the from the first Witcher game. So I'm, I'm I do wonder if because he saw or at least had some hand in some of the ideas of Witcher one before he went all hands off on it. Uh, if this is him trying to correct it or write his own version of it they're they're very different at the end of the day what they're setting out to do but that that very clear line um of connection with the with the mutations in the and the transhumanism is very interesting to note because of when this novel was written and came out so who, who knows on that fact? Only Spikowski himself knows. But I do find that interesting. One thing that's of, of interest is the way in which Geralt deals with Sorrel. It's, it's much like, as Powell Pratt mentioned, the obsession with evidence and how uh, everything could be very clear cut, but because you don't have substantial fact, you're not quite sure. And so some people lit that, let that slide. Geralt, without a doubt, figured out that Sorrel was behind some of. Whether he was possessed or not is another question entirely. But he wasn't quite sure. And even though it was clear that Sorrel was being theatrical about his sorrow of what had happened, he wasn't sure. And so he couldn't do the execution. This is, you know, part of this was him being a scapegoat and him realizing that. But also, he has scruples. We know he has scruples. And this isn't the first time his scruples got him in trouble. Not just the short stories, but if the the very famous opening of the, the Thaddae Coup is all of this would have went differently if the Witcher didn't have scruples. And that really shows who he is as a person and uh, that gets him into a whole heap of trouble with Sorrel. Um, and, and what's interesting is the way he talks about demon possession and whether he believes it or not. He claims to have dealt with two demons in the past. One possessing a human being and one possessing a wolf. And, and when asked if he vanquish these demons he said no i killed the human and i killed the wolf um and the wolf he's like there, there was there was substantive sign to show that maybe there was something supernatural for the human he wasn't quite sure and maybe it was just uh, you know rumor or hearsay and what's interesting is the way demons are described uh, they are basically spectral monsters, whereas monsters were uh, creatures either created or, uh, you know, traveled here through the construction of spheres, the demons are astral projected from one sphere to another. And uh, Gerald points out this can only be done magically, and which means mages are always responsible for demon possession, and that... Uh, to in order to be tied to a host, they have to be magically tied to a host. And this is usually done because the mages experimenting or doing something nefarious, so an actual fact that the true demons here are the mages who think that they can handle a being from another plane of existence as though that's just a normal thing that they can do, when that requires a huge amount of hubris to even think about. Uh, and, and there's a point where he questions whether demons... ...actually existed or or not, and, and, and with Sorrel he was quite sure. Uh, I think it's interesting how, despite his tale of the demon stuff, and the what the mages say... This doesn't confirm or deny the existence of actual demons. Was it something else entirely? The Witcher as a whole likes to subvert expectations like that. So it's ultimately up to you to draw your own conclusion. Again, Stupkowski makes fun of uh, of fantasy naming conventions with The Hill having multiple different names. Some of them from Legends, some of them not. and Everybody has a disputed idea of it, but eventually it's just called the hill and uh the foresters uh you know uh, being this racist mob and how they can sometimes be mistaken for law enforcement uh and, and then the law enforcement that we've met so far are either corrupt or they're good so um you know, wh- whereas uh, the Foresters are obviously a different brand of corrupt, they are corrupt in ideology, not, not just of morals. And th- that leads to an interesting question of whether law enforcement is inherently um, abusive as a concept, and whether it can be used for a force of good, even if there are good people there, which is a topic he touched upon in Tower of Swallows, actually. Uh, The interlude is pretty funny because it picks up on a small line from the very first short story, The Witcher. Um, Foltis mentions that there was a border dispute, uh, some sort of border post uh, conflict with with Redania many, many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, uh, we see that happen, and it's quite literal. It was border posts being moved. And what's so funny about this is not only is this, like, a thing that has happened in real life, but the idea that moving a piece of wood changes the entire landscape politically is hilarious, inherently. And I it's such a stupid conflict over stupid stuff. And it shows just how ridiculous the idea of territory. This is all... The world. The world belongs to humans. The idea of heavy borders is kind of hilarious because there are no natural borders in the real world. It's just land and more land. Uh, And so the idea that the moving of a small wooden pole changes everything is inherently stupid. Uh, And it's a nice pickup on that old uh, uh, bit of world building. Uh, and what's interesting is, you know, this this book acts as a prequel uh, and a sidequel, as, as I mentioned before, but the first short story had issues with it being the first, it, and not everything was clearly thought out yet, hadn't really defined who Geralt was as a character in the world, he had some basic ideas and some concepts, some of it got retconned and stuff. One of the aspects I like about Season of Storms, outside of the whole, uh, you know, capitalism metaphor with the, the mages and, and how economy rules, um, fundamentally and how it destroys your moral compass, is that Season of Storms tries to recontextualize that for a short story and, uh, pick up on things from it, recontextualize Geralt as a person, and which will come to the forefront near the end of the book, uh, and I think that's very interesting. It's sort of Sturkowski doing a, a, a band-aid on his previous work and going, okay, yeah, that was the first short story. It, it was famous because it kickstarted all this, but it does some have some issues you know, fitting into the whole canon of everything, so I need to address that. Uh, it's a writer acknowledging their own flaw um, and fault and trying to fix it in a way that befits the character and befits the world. But anyway, I shall see you next time. Till then, bye.